The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, How to Play U.S.'s Embrace of Industrial Policy. Today with me is Evelyn Chow, Senior Research Analyst at Newberger Berman, where she focuses on the diversified industrial sector. Welcome, Evelyn. Hi, Rashma. Nice to be here. Thanks so much for joining me. You know, we had a piece this past weekend where you helped me um, sort of figure out um, the impact of industrial policy and, and sort of this more recent pivot toward an aggressive, more aggressive use of it, I guess, by the U.S. with the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and the Infrastructure Bill. Um, maybe we can start a little bit with um, what's driving this sort of pivot or shift towards using um, industrial policy. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's really quite interesting because historically, even though we've been proponents of industrial policy in the U.S. since our founding fathers, you know, Alexander Hamilton, probably the most widely noted one, as you wrote about in your piece, um, since then it's been something of a four-letter word. Um, and oftentimes the ways that we've wielded industrial policy tend to be in response to an external threat. Um, you know, whether you're thinking about FDR's New Deal in the 1930s, um, Cold War tensions and the Sputnik launch in the 1950s, um, all the way to the 80s, where, you know, we tried to spur semiconductor manufacturing with the Semitech Consortium as well. And so I do think industrial policy can have multiple goals. Um, some of the most important of those goals are accelerating growth. Um, Offsetting externalities is also a really key reason why I think we are pursuing a more rigorous stance on industrial policy. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the case of renewable development. And so I do think, you know, traditional thinking on public investment and industrial policy has been that public investment supplants private investment. But now we're really making this exciting wholesale bet that public investment can for private investment and maybe even serve as a multiplier on it. Mm, yes, that's true. Um, so you you mentioned sort of um, renewables and, and the energy transition. Obviously, the other external sort of situation is China and sort of increasing our competitiveness um, with the CHIPS Act, for example, um, to kind of deal with the rising China and sort of this push to become more self-reliant. Um, and, and so on that front, on either of those fronts, actually, we have seen private sector investment pick up, right? What, what are you seeing on that front in terms of um, some of that? money coming in, um, even be, before some of the public um, investment has come through? Yes, I mean, there's no question that with such multinational corporations in the U.S., a lot of private investment has taken place on a truly global scale. And, you know, I think as you correctly identify, you know, especially post-COVID, where so many of our supply chains were so snarled, we've become increasingly mindful of the need to build resilience in our supply chains. And that's motivated a host of investment that the recent kind of three key pieces of legislation that you highlighted at the outset have really tried to address. Um, you know, I think on 
one vertical that this is most apparent in is, is clearly semiconductor manufacturing, right? I mean, in the 1990s, almost 40% of global semiconductor manufacturing was based in the U.S. Now that number is something like 12 to 13%. But even more critically, we have 0% of leading edge logic capacity in the state. And so I think both corporations and policymakers have been united in this goal of realizing, you know, especially with those leading edge logic capacity, that's what gets you cloud. That's what gets you smartphones. That's what's in your tablet. And that's just so important um, in the way that modern life is constructed and modern industry is constructed as well. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I want to remind the audience to submit some questions and I'll try to weave them in. So one of the questions we have so far is from Michael, who's talking about or he's asking about what, you know, how you feel about some of the worker quote unquote impediments involved in the requirements for working at a semi-cap semiconductor fab. So, you know, one of the challenges it seems like as chip companies do try to build here domestically is, is access to the talent needed. I mean, what are you seeing on that front? Yeah, you know, first, I think it's important to acknowledge labor is going to be a critical issue facing us in the next few decades. And, you know, when you think about kind of labor costs, as a percentage of revenue across the S&P, on average, it's about 12%. But in sectors like industrial, um, and to a lesser extent, semiconductor manufacturing, that number is over 20%. Mm. So labor mm. is a critical, critical component of how we actually support the kind of production and capacity development that we're targeting. Now, for semiconductor in particular, you know, I think some numbers I've read have shown that you know, something like 60 to 70,000 workers are needed by 2030 to support uh, chip manufacturing. And a lot of those workers are engineers. So there is a component of the CHIPS Act that is slated for workforce development. Um, it's a couple hundred million dollars, but it's, it's only a small sliver of what we're earmarking for chip manufacturing. And I think that's going to be a problem that we really need to solve. And part mm -hmm. of that is further education, workforce development. Part of it is automation. I mean, you know, that's been a critical driving force in industrial production over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, and I think we'll need to see more of it. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I did want to know, I mean, the other thing that I think will really support labor in chip manufacturing is the creation of hubs, right? So whether you think about TSMC in Arizona, Intel in Ohio, Intel announced a $20 billion investment in two facilities in Ohio. That's going to be a real linchpin of how to generate additional labor uh, to support some of our aims here. Yeah, that makes sense. So in, in my story, but about some of these innovation hubs, battery belts for when it comes to sort of the energy transition. Um, so that makes sense. Um, so I guess you talked about labor costs. What does that mean for inflationary pressures that come out of this out of this push? Yeah, I think you know one maybe known but unfortunate side effect of supply chain resilience and to a broader extent deglobalization is that inflation goes up, right? And we we we've seen that play out in really acute forms, especially during the pandemic and after the pandemic. You know, if you think about how difficult it was just to buy a car or to get a washing machine. Um, a lot of that 
stems from the fact that as you continue to separate these supply chains, um, costs do rise. And I think, you know, the flip side of having more inflation is also that you're seeing real accelerating organic growth, especially across the industrial complex. And that's a demand and a supply side uh, phenomenon. So, you know, I think it's something that generally private investment can manage. Um, but of course, you also see policymakers wield different fiscal policy tools to try to calibrate inflation to an appropriate level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what is what is the IRA, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act do to some of the assumptions investors have long had about industrials and cyclicality, for example? Yeah. Um, so I want to take a step back and just illustrate the scale of the three key pieces of legislation that have been enacted. So when you think about the Chips and Science Act, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act, together, those aggregate to over $1.75 trillion of spend over 10 years. Um, probably the most sweeping government program since LBJ's Great Society. And so when you think about what these pieces of legislation are catalyzing, I think there's one important realization, which is right now to invest in industrial is to invest in innovation. Um, with the IRA in particular, a lot of that right now is climate innovation. And so you see the potential for a sector that has frankly had pretty lackluster organic growth and performance versus the S&P over the last 20 years begin to assume a disproportionate positive economic impact. So you think about this sector, industrial is 11% of US GDP. It was almost 30% back in 1953, the glory days of industrial manufacturing. But even today, it still represents 70% of business R&D spend um, and 35% of productivity growth. So I think some of the things that the IRA is doing beyond incentivizing the growth of certain key industries, um, especially in decarbonization pathways, so think solar, wind, hydrogen, um, it's also creating higher structural through cycle organic and earnings growth. Um, and supporting the development of a lot of different technology that are going to be really, really important for us to reach a cleaner, greener future. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, you, know, you, you said a lot of great things there. So we're sort of seeing a manufacturer, there's talk of at least of a manufacturing revival. Um, you know, manufacturing has sort of been in the, in the slumps for a bit. I mean, are you seeing that already when you look at the companies that you own in portfolios? I think it's absolutely starting to see green shoots and a lot of the good news is still on the come. So, you know, I referenced Intel and TSMC making capacity announcements, but you also hear, you know, in the solar complex, First Solar just announced its fifth U.S. manufacturing plant recently. Um, And then European EV OEM Stellantis has a couple different uh, JVs, including with Samsung SBI to build gigafactories in the U.S. for battery manufacturing. So you're really starting to see it come in the capacity announcements and in the funnel. Um, You know, one stock that I think is very emblematic of this is Emerson Electric. Um, So this is a $60 billion market cap automation and digital software company. It's undergone a significant portfolio transformation under the new CEO. Um, And since 
some of these pieces of legislation were announced that we've been discussing, Emerson's strategic project funnel, which ultimately converts into orders and revenues, has seen absolutely explosive growth, especially in the sustainability and decarbonization and energy transition vertical. So that funnel now is up over 20% organically to almost $10 billion with energy transition projects making up half that. Mm. Um, and so I think that's going to create a really compelling opportunity for many industrial companies to support significant organic growth well over what industrial production forecasts um, should entail. Mm, okay. Um, so I think I, I'd love to dig into that because I think we've got a lot of questions on that front. So Philip's asking which industrial sub-industry should have less volatility in light of some of the incentives in these bills. Um, so you kind of touched on one a little bit. I mean, are, where, where should people be looking at this juncture to kind of um, look for perhaps more stability than they normally would have gotten? Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting, right? Because historically, industrials have had a value tilt. And while that's still the case, I think with some of this legislation, you also see a little bit more of a growth tilt. And so I think the idea of sort of dampening cyclicality or volatility is a really important one. Um, I think maybe let me take a step back and just talk about, you know, how do I even break down a framework for investing in IRA and other industrial policy beneficiaries? Um, so I tend to think about three distinct buckets that are really important to consider. Some stocks have overlap across the three. Um, you know, the first is new energy winners. So that's companies involved in renewables, hydrogen, grid modernization, energy efficiency. Um, the second is nearshoring winners. So, you know, we've had a lot of conversation, Reshma, about investment and capacity being brought back to the states. And that's a really um, important component of I think how investors should position for the IRA. And then last but not least, I think about next generation vehicles. You know, so much of our energy uh, consumption, our greenhouse gas emissions derives from the transport vertical. And so when you see continued electrification of vehicles, both cars and light trucks, that's really important. Now, I think in terms of how do you maybe dampen some of this volatility, First, it's important to have a long-term view. I mean, I do think, you know, at the end of the, the day, industrials continue to be a somewhat rate-sensitive sector, but there are companies here where I think their growth prospects are going to be able to afford them an opportunity to continue expanding existing moats and even enter new markets enabled by the IRA's policy. Um, and so, you know, I, I look for companies with strong technology leadership positions. Um, you know, I think Eaton is a good example of that, and I'm happy to go into that in more detail. Yeah. Um, I look at companies that have very good cost control and a track record of execution on that cost control. And on that, I think about a company like Ingersoll Rand, which is very important for reshoring and semi-manufacturing. Um, and then last but not least, uh, good capital allocators. So a lot of companies are going to start directing their M&A spend to these verticals, and I think quantum services is a really important one. You know, this is a traditional engineering and construction firm that two years ago acquired another leading renewable EPC called Flatner, and that has significantly shored up its renewables credentials and pipelines. 
Those are great. Thank you for that framework. That really helps. Um, so, I mean, I think there is this concern that some of the um, potential has already been baked into the prices. Um, what do you say to that? And then what do you say about some of the questions about, you know, industrial policy leading to waste? You know, Hal's asking if, um, you know, you're expecting these investments in industrial product production to yield self-sufficient businesses or kind of end up in a China-style state-run enterprise that is bloated and, and whatnot. You know, I think that's often sort of at least the initial allergy to industrial policy. So how do you think about um, efficient allocation of these resources and, and what it means for valuations? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that there certainly was a spurt of excitement when some of these pieces of legislation were announced. But those rallies don't really get sustained until you see upward earnings revisions. And we're just on the cusp of that. So, you know, I referenced Emerson, I referenced Quanta. These are companies that are just starting to see backlogs and uh, project funnels rise because of some of the industries that are most supported by the IRA and other policies. So they don't really convert into revenues until, you know, 2024 at the earliest. And should extend well into 25 and 26. And so I think, you know, one of the very interesting, um, I don't know, conundrum is quite the word, but one of the most interesting conundrums of industrials right now is we're coming off this huge post-COVID normalization period where historically you start to see IP um, decline, but corporate earnings are not. Corporate mm -hmm. earnings are still going up there's still upside to corporate earnings in the industrial complex. And so I think that upward earnings revision momentum will help support some of the premium valuations that um, select winners in this category are afforded. Now, I think when it comes to sort of skepticism on industrial policy, I'd probably note a couple of things. I mean, the first is industrial policy is most effective not when picking winners and losers, like in a sort of state-run company context. Industrial policy is most effective when solving collective action problems. And so, you know, we do have some blemishes on our record historically, right? I mean, mm -hmm. in renewables, the key one that I think everyone is familiar with is Solyndra. Um, Solyndra was a solar panel company that got a bunch of loans after the ARA in 2009 and subsequently became insolvent. And I think that is such a good example of why government cannot directly pick winners. The role of governments in industrial policy is to affect innovation and to incentivize that innovation. And that's, I think, really the complexion that the IRA has now. You know, the IRA is not about designating the winners and losers. It's about creating the capital to then amplify that capital with private investment and still allow free markets to occur. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that makes sense. Um, so I want to kind of go back to your framework. And, and you know, so you mentioned um, sort of the cost controls and exe execution, of course, um, but automation is a big portion of that, right? So what are some of the, the tailwinds, I guess, for some of the automation companies and, and what has not yet been recognized in, in, the, in the possibility for these guys? Yeah. Um, so automation, you know, it's a thread that runs across all three of the legs of the stool that I outlined, but nowhere is it more apparent than mirror shoring, right? And I think one critical misconception about automation is that it's simply about labor replacement. It's not. I mean, it's also important in industries where there's low tolerance to defects or a high cost of quality. 
And so that's why, you know, our auto industry has been one of the most front-footed adopters of automation in this country. Um, because you think about, you know, any car that comes off the manufacturing line, the tolerance for defects is incredibly, incredibly low. The requirement for safety is incredibly, incredibly high. And so, you know, when I think about other areas automation could start to permeate, EV batteries is clearly one of the leading verticals. Um, and we also can't overlook pharmaceuticals and life science. I mean, precision is really important in those verticals too. Um, and I think automation is a really key aspect of that. Mm, good now, point. you know, some of the, oh, sorry, Rashma. So oh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'm just so excited about this topic. It's hard for me to stop. Um, so to illustrate some of that, you know, on a more stock specific basis, some of the ones that I like best include Rockwell Automation. And so, you know, that's a 40 billion market cap pure play automation company. It's driving low to mid teams organic growth, and it does benefit from this reshoring and automation push across a number of fronts. Emerson, we already talked about, um, you know, and I think reshoring is also an automation are also hand in hand with um, grid modernization. And so that's where a name like Eaton, a name like Envent, which is a mid-cap electrical company that benefits from utility spend and explosive data center growth, um, where those things are really brought to bear. Mm -hmm. um, so, so one question, I guess, that comes up with labor, and we've got Ed asking is, are you concerned about sort of recent union activism and, you know, the resulting agreements that come out of it that could perhaps lower overall productivity and then kind of eat into global competitiveness? So how do you look at this in, in sort of the broader scale of what we're doing here and how it um, puts us in position versus competitors? Yeah, I mean, collective action has been enshrined in U.S. labor for many decades, right? And I think the most notable recent example is what's happening with United Auto Workers, um, which is the union for our big three auto OEM uh, in the U.S. Um, there's no doubt that there are times where union negotiation, union policy has to be considered for any um, affected company, but I would say that oftentimes I find stock reaction to collective action bargaining tends to be a little bit shoot first and ask questions later. And ultimately, you know, near-term stock impacts can be more pronounced, but are very transitory because ultimately incentives are more aligned than one might think, right? I mean, auto UAW auto workers want to continue to have jobs and be paid what they consider a fair wage. Auto OEMs are very, very strapped for labor and need additional labor. So I think ultimately a lot of these kinds of skirmishes work themselves out. Um, and I'm not too concerned about the prospects of continued union action um, and its effect on, on the growth that we're seeing here. That's very helpful. Thank you. So I'm going to take a couple more questions here. Um, Bob's asking how the nation's electrical grid will be able to handle the increasing power demands from the U.S. industrial expansion. Yeah, um, I'm really happy to have an opportunity to answer this question in particular because it lets me put on a bit of a mythbuster hat. So let's start with the facts. I mean, first of all, there is no denying our installed grid is absolutely ancient. It's greater than 50 years old in parts of the U.S. and actually also in Europe. 
Um, and so there is a significant expansion and upgrading um, drive that has to take place. But I think one critical misconception that often takes place when people hear about you know, the proliferation of electric vehicles, heat pumps, electrification, um, et cetera, et cetera, is that this requires wholesale capacity addition. It doesn't really. I mean, what's more at stake right now is grid modernization, grid resilience, and dynamic demand response. And so maybe just to highlight an example from the EV space, you know, even if I snap my finger and, you know, all new car and light truck sales were 100% electric starting tomorrow, it would take over a decade for all cars on the road today to become even 90% EV. And so, you know, to contextualize that, if 80 to 90% of all passenger cars became electric, this would increase electricity consumption by 10 to 15%, which sounds like a lot, but that probably doesn't happen for another 10 to 15 years. And so we have a lot of time to continue expanding capacity on the grid. The much more important thing we need to solve right now is resilience and demand response. Mm -hmm. So if you think about you know, wildfires impacting um, brownouts and blackouts um, all the way to you know, we're just using the grid much more dynamically than before. Um, I think those are today's problems that we definitely need to solve. But capacity addition is, is probably low on my list of real concerns as it relates to the grid. Mm, that context helps. Thank you. Um, so I know you're mostly a manager, but Gabriel's asking if you could comment on countries or regions benefiting from nearshoring. Um, you know, I, I've written, for example, about Mexico and, and the ASEAN countries um, benefiting. But I'm just kind of curious, when you talk to your companies, what are you hearing? Yeah. Um, so I think with the IRA, the number one country that is benefiting from nearshoring, it is the U.S. So I, I think that we take that as our premise and think about, okay, who are our friends that we're also interested in friendshoring to? I think... Um, as you highlighted, Reshma, Mexico is clearly the country that's best poised to ride the nearshoring wave, and you especially see that taking place um, in the auto space. So, you know, major auto OEMs, even auto suppliers like conglomerates like ITT, um, they're all investing capacity in Mexico. Um, broadly speaking, I do think the NAFTA countries benefit. Um, some of the longer-term impacts remain to be seen uh, beyond that. That makes sense. Um, so I guess then one, you know, one thing we can end on is talking about some of the risks. You know, I think there's a, a lot of nuance and details um, in, in these policies and these bills. And there's yeah. questions about, we, we talked a little bit about labor, but permitting, um, and also questions about what happens if we have a different administration in the White House next year. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about sort of how you think about those? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really impressive and admirable aspects of legislation like the IRA is it was largely a bipartisan effort. Now, obviously, concessions had to be made, and you know, there was some give and take, especially as you noted, Reshma, around permitting and uh, and land leases for oil and gas. Um, that being said, I think the biggest risk to some of the legislation that we've seen is, is clearly implementation. Right? I mean, a lot of the body of the law is now written, 
But what is still being determined and formulated is, you know, how exactly are tax credits uh, enacted? How exactly are subsidies uh, determined and allocated? And so, especially, actually both on a federal and a state level, that is probably the biggest risk that some of the most meaty parts of implementation, especially from a tax incentive and credit standpoint, are somehow reversed or rolled back. Um, you know, I think a lot of that remains to be seen because one really important thing to note is actually that when you think about the counties that the IRA is most directly impacting in terms of where our new capacity additions and development announced, they have actually mostly been, and I should actually say the plurality of those counties are actually Republican counties. So I think on a, certainly a state level, there's truly aligned interest in making sure that the IRA can move forward as currently contemplated. Mm, that's, a, that's an interesting point, and I think um, kind of breaks through a little bit of the polarization. So we, we talked about um, a bunch of stocks. Was there any one um, that we did not get to that you want to sort of mention as the last, last one to throw out there for our readers? Yeah, I think I spent a lot of time discussing the new energy winners and the nearshoring winners probably gave short shrift to next generation vehicles. So, you know, a couple in that vertical are Stellantis. This is a European EV OEM that's announced a bevy of EV launches. Um, and like I mentioned previously, has now two JVs for battery facilities in the US um, with both LG Energy Solutions and Samsung SBI. Um, and then, you know, the other one that I'd probably highlight is uh, LNF. So this is actually a Korean listed cathode materials producer, but it's a key supplier of Tesla, um, very important in driving US EV growth, which at least on a growth rate basis is expected to far exceed what's happening in China domestically. Um, and so, you know, those are probably two that I'd highlight in, in, in that space. Okay, that's great. So we have two questions that snuck in very quickly. So I'm going to ask you while we still have time very quickly. Um, so Jason's asking, um, the industrial sector has a large focus in aerospace and def defense. Will the IRA and CHIPS Act impact this subsection? Or should we be looking for other ways to invest in the industrial sector? You, of course, just gave us a whole bunch of other ways. But uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have to admit, I think aerospace and defense is one area that's been given a little bit of short shrift in the current legislation, that does not preclude the fact that it has been one of the best performing subsectors in industrial year to date. And a lot of that I think has to do more with normalization post COVID, um, people's return to flying and being in the sky um, and ultimately getting supply chain normalized, which is going to be a really critical part of allowing AMD to take flight, so to speak. Got it. Um, so Ed's basically asking about the economy, you know, as we're seeing some things like the consumer and corporate delinquencies and defaults rising and margin pressure. Um, how does that feed through back to industrials, kind of going back to this concept of the economy and, and the linkage? Um, how are you thinking about the economic impact on industrials? Yeah. So historically, when you think about kind of economic cycles, consumer and industrial do move together. And sometimes consumer leads and industrials into, you know, let's say a downturn. I think I would hardly make the claim that industrials is now recession proof, but I would say that having outlined some of these areas that are exposed to long-term secular growth, what we can start to see is the potential dampening 
of growth declines in industrials if the economy were to move into a recession. And so, you know, I think picking winners within the sector is still very important. Um, and, you know, Reshma, you and I talked about a few that I like best. Um, but that's kind of how I contextualize the possibility of some of this impressive growth helping to offset you know, potential cyclical gyrations. Mm, that's very helpful. Um, so that is all the time we have for today. Um, thank you to the audience for tuning in. Evelyn, thank you so much for breaking this down and giving us some stock picks. Uh, please join us again tomorrow. Jill Johnson, CEO of the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership, will be speaking with MarketWatch's Beth Pinsker about how her nonprofit works to connect investors with diverse founders, entrepreneurs, and small business owners who need their capital and mentorship. Thank you all again for listening. Take care. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.